Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. People see a chance to, to be a journalist. I, I think people are excited to work still at City Paper. You get to actually write. Because if you're going to start off at like a big publication, you're probably not writing or you're writing, you know, super stiff, boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so like I've only pretty much worked for smaller papers and I'm so happy that I have because, you know, there's a slower pace and you get to develop yourself and learn. Welcome to a live podcast recording of It's All Journalism. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. We're here at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. to talk about the future of the alternative press. We're here with a crowd. Um, let them know you're here, that I'm not making this up. Okay, the first thing I want to do is to thank the three groups that have helped make this live recording possible. The National Press Club, the Association of Alternative News Media, our media partner, and the Online News Association's D.C. Meetup Group. In particular, I want to thank Jessica Estepa of the ONADC Meetup Group. Jessica, please stand up. Thank you. And also Susan, how do you say her last name? Straglinski. Is that close? Okay, excellent. Of the, you're supposed to, and this is this is the thing they tell you in radio too. You're supposed to call ahead of time. You're supposed to get it all phonetically put out and say it. But this is podcasting, so we're not that particular. Of the National Press Club for helping to organize this event. As I said at the top, we're here tonight to talk about the future of the alternative press. To help us examine this topic, we are joined by four alt press experts. Alexa Mills is the editor of the Washington City Paper. Andrew Bujon is a former managing editor of the Washington City Paper and is now a senior editor at the Washingtonian Magazine. Jason Zaragoza is the executive director of the Association of Alternative News Media. And Lisa Snowden McRae is editor-in-chief of the alt-press venture, The Baltimore Beat. If you've been paying attention to the news over the last year or so, you've seen that the alt-press has really been taking it on the chin. The LA Weekly was sold in November and its entire staff was laid off. The Village Voice ceased publishing its print edition. The Baltimore City Paper folded in November. The Washington City Paper is currently up for sale. So to start off with, Jason, let me ask you, how would you describe the state of the alt press at the moment? Well, first of all, Mike, thanks for having us. Uh, thanks to Jessica and Suzanne for helping organize and put this uh, together. This is great here. I mean, I would say that like the rest of the media industry, we're in a period of transition. And this is something that doesn't just affect us. I and mean, we've seen in the past couple months venture capital funded sites like BuzzFeed and Vice Media, ESPN has had cuts, even you know on a local level, DCist and the Gothamist sites we've seen shut down the past month. So this isn't necessarily an alt press thing. This is a, you know, whether you're going to all print media, digital media, this is a media industry problem. We're all facing economic headwinds. You know, in our case, I think it's hard to make generalizations about what's happening. I think in each of the specific situations, you know, there were specific reasons why each of the individual papers either closed or were sold. Some of it could do to the situations in which those papers have been acquired in the first place and the kind of debt that those owners had. Some of it could happen to do with, you know, you know, in Baltimore, for example, you know, being owned by the Tribune Company, there's a questions there whether how committed they were to having an alt in that market. So it's hard to make, you know, generalizations about that. You know, at the same time, you know, a lot of good journalists 
many of which you know, I consider friends and colleagues um, you know, have lost their jobs over the past couple of months, and that's been that never stops it never stops really hurting you know just to see things like that i mean i think you know similar in the way that ona is kind of uh from what i've seen of ona you know Anne is kind of like a family and so when we you know every time one of these papers closes or cuts it you know it hurts it hit, it hits us all hard at the same time i mean i think that we're in a political climate right now where we need independent voices now more than ever, especially from the left. Uh, you know, we have an administration that's hostile to communities of color, to the LGBT community, to the working class, which supposedly, you know, they say that they represent. But we need alts now more than ever because traditionally, you know, we have been the voices that be speaking out for the for marginalized communities. And um, I think that, you know, although we're facing the same economic headwinds as the rest of the media industry. I think there's an opportunity here because I think there is a strong demand for authentic, independent voices right now. Alexa, let me let me ask you. We talked at the at the beginning. You you've been on the podcast recently, and you at that time, the last time we spoke, you were ta- you were speaking about the Washington City paper going up for sale. So, regardless of what actually happens as a result of the current sale process, what should the future city paper look like? Thanks so much for the question, Michael. Thanks, everybody, for being here. And I want to echo Jason's thank yous to everyone who helped put this together. So, city paper is for sale. <laughs> you know, and, and We're doing what an will... auction, actually. <laughs> um, what the future of city paper, I truly believe right today, is not known. And I don't think that... Anyone probably. Um, my best guess is that no one knows the future of City Paper today. So when I talked to Michael about the, the podcast, I said, well, what can I, I can talk about is what I think would be great for the future of City Paper. Or, or another way to frame that is what would be great for local news in D.C., which is a major city. Um, so I think that right now in D.C., we're looking at basically a news shortage. I mean, there's not enough news. There's stories that don't get covered. We give up stories all the time. Our arts editor, Matt Cohen, is sitting here. The rest of my staff is at home writing. I can promise you that. And we start our work day at about 7.30 to put out our newsletter, 7.30 or 8. So with what we've got, that's, you know, you're, you're getting our max and we're making hard choices about what we're going to cover. I think, you know, one thing that's happened here in D.C. is that D.C. died. But what I was thinking about is before D.C. died, City Paper had a staff person called City Desk that basically did that DCist thing where someone was doing, you know, two or three posts a day and putting that news out there. So there's actually competition between City Paper and DCist. And then we lost that position. And then subsequently, you know, about a year or so later, DCist totally folded. So that that capacity like basically doesn't exist when just, you know, 18 months ago you had people actually fighting to get better stories. So I think that in a dream world, City Paper, you know, is gets great new ownership and expands and really becomes DC's hometown newspaper. I mean, the Post has made a choice that they want to be a national newspaper and, you know, really they're doing great at that. But they they're, you know, a fraction of what their local coverage used to be. So I picture a city paper that expands into doing comprehensive, you know, education coverage, more politics, sports. Things like that. I picture a city paper where we start to have a conversation with the public about what an expanded newspaper would look like, what kind of beats people want or need. I think personally, you know, if city paper survives and comes out on the other end of this alive, one of my goals is definitely racial diversity on the journalism staff. And not to say that we're all white, we aren't. I don't want to, you know, discredit um, anything. But I think that city paper has long not been 
reflective of the racial comp composition of the district, and that would be a major goal if, if we had the chance to gradually hire, so hire more people. Um, so I think that those are some of the ideas I have for what a great newspaper for the district, which, I mean, it's not sort of unreasonable for a major city to, or, or any city or town to want to have a, a newspaper, you know, that's really focused and really committed to what is life in the district, where is the corruption, who are we holding accountable. So it's a, it's a basic vision, but that's sort of the idea that, that I have and I know that a lot of city paper staffers are excited about. So, Andrew, when, you know, how long were you at the city paper? Four years. Four years. So what do you see is, is the role of the alternative press, an alt-press publication in a, in a community? What, what role does that fill? I mean, I can tell you what it was, which is different now. You know, it was, you know, the, the role of the alt-papers was originally almost like an act of media criticism. Jack Schaefer said, you know, that every article they wrote was a criticism of the Washington Post. That's a very different world that we're living in now. I mean, I don't think, I, I don't necessarily agree that the Post has edged away from local. In fact, they've got more people working on Metro than they did when Jeff Bezos bought the paper. But they would go after stories in very different ways than we would. There were stories that they would never touch. And I think that that's true today. So, you know, when you look at, like, the alt papers of old, there, you know, the, the first Washington alt papers, one had an, had an illegal drugs columnist, you know. That has now changed to, to um, you know, what you're doing now with Brandon, you know. You've got, like, like illegal drugs columnist. <laughs> um, so... Welcome to D.C. Yeah. <laughs> As things has, have changed, like, the role of the alt press, I think has got to change with it. And I think, you know, I've talked about this before with you, but I think, you know, what we need to think about is the spirit of the alt press versus the product. And the spirit and the product are different things. Now, speaking of, of spirits, now, Lisa, we were, spe we were speaking before the um, we came up here to the podium about this was your press day, right? For yes. the Issue number five, mm -hmm. you said, of the Baltimore Beat. Now, you and your staff at the Baltimore Beat have given the alternative press a second life in your city. Can you tell us about your goal and the process for launching this new venture? Sure. Our goal is just to keep making papers as long as we can. We weren't given the venue to do that by Trunk and Baltimore Sun Media Group. And um, a lot of what the, the framework was built kind of before I, I signed on as editor-in-chief, it was Brandon Soderbergh, who's the old city paper, Baltimore City Paper editor, and Kevin Neff, who runs the Washington, D.C. Blade. So Kevin lives in Baltimore, even though he works here in D.C., and saw that the city paper was closing, approached the Sun and tried to buy it, and they basically gave him some crazy number that was just untenable. So then he tried to license the name, and they wouldn't let him do that either. So they just kind of said, okay, we're going to do a new thing. And that's where we are. The reason why we're able to put out papers, why I'm able to put out a paper and then drive to D.C., is that we've made partnerships and kind of made this like a, like a group effort. So we get news from the Washington Blade. They have kind of a sister paper out in L.A., so we get news from the L.A. Blade. We are literally, because we don't have offices yet, we're working inside the offices of the Real News Network, which is kind of a super lefty video network. 
So a lot of their reporters who are used to doing video news are now writing for us. And we're kind of teaching them how to make the jump from writing for something that's to be seen and heard and writing for print. Otherwise, we wouldn't be, like our cover story this week is kind of a, a look at the way that the Baltimore City Police Department is handling the death of Detective Sean Souter and the ways that they're not handling it and being really closed-mouthed about a lot of the details. And that was written by Baynard, who's not even our staffer. He's officially, Baynard Woods is a reporter with The Real News. So it's kind of like building this grassroots alternative media network that gets this stuff done, or else I think I would not be sitting here looking like a normal person. <laughs> so I want to follow up on something that, that Andrew had brought up, and sort of we could have a general discussion about it. The, this idea of maybe not re recreating the, the, what the, the paper is or, or has been, but recreating the spirit in different ways. What do each of you sort of think that might be in how to carry the spirit of the alternative press forward in sort of our changing media landscape. This is for all of you. Now we're into the general questions portion of our evening. For me, the alternative press has not always served me because it's always been really white. To be completely honest, a lot of the times, a lot of the time in the past, I didn't really, I wrote for Baltimore City Paper. There were years before that that I never really read it because there wasn't anything that I identified. I didn't really start reading it actively until after the uprising. And they were really, really, you know, really strong on their coverage of the uprising, the fallout, the players, all that stuff. So, so for me, following that, you know, that history means something a little bit different. So for me, it means kind of approaching it from the outside, from someone who's not going to, like, be invited to City Hall or be invited to sit down with the police commissioner, so much as like a lot of the other things that are kind of cultural things that you associate with alternative press a lot. And another thing that I noticed is like, you know, when you think of alternative press, like we've had the Afro-American newspapers in Baltimore and in DC for, you know, longer than any of us here have been alive or even our grandparents. And it's weird that they're not considered alternative press or even uh, Kevin's blade, like, as part of our, you know, assimilation into his community, we were like, well, why doesn't the Blade, it was weird to us that the Blade wasn't even in AAN, because it's like, that's alternative press also. So for me, it's more like the outsider stance and figuring out how to, how to bring news and also kind of like a more common sense approach to news. Like one of the things that we do that I don't see a lot in even like the Sun is like, community event listings. Here's when you're, here's where your city councilman is having a meeting, here's where, you know, the Office of Civil Rights is having a meeting. Here's where, you know, they're doing a coat drive for some kids. So that's what it means for me. So let me throw a little gasoline on this fire. So is the alternative press, is, I mean, it, it, something, that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it's something that came out of the 60s. It was sort of a, you know, alternative to mainstream media. I mean, are we in a place, especially when, you know, people are blogging, people are podcasting, we're able to find their, to find their audiences their own way. I mean, is the alternative press, I'm sorry to do this to you, Jason, is the alternative press something that, that we're going to grow out of into something else? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a valid question about what, what defines alternative, you know, especially, you know, since, you know, we have outlets such as since the Gawker, Rest in Peace, and, you know, things like that. I mean, the voice of what we would consider an alt now exists everywhere in the Internet, and so that has changed. And in a lot of ways, especially in 
some of the smaller and medium to markets, the alt has really kind of stepped up to not replace the daily, but become more of the mainstream. It's a lot of the markets where, say, gatehouse-owned papers or other, you know, some of the advanced papers have been really made huge, huge cuts, where and papers have really stepped up to fill a gap and, and become more of the mainstream. And so I think it's it's blurry now, the difference between what's considered alternative and mainstream. But at the same time, I think there is still alts still do have a lot more, I think, freedom to do what, what say, that a daily wouldn't be able to do in terms of, you know, there's still a lot more room for literary journalism and to, more time to do in, investigative pieces on stories that wouldn't be told. And I think, you know, you know, Lisa brought up a good point about what, you know, maybe Baltimore City paper, how she might not have paid attention to it until the uprising. And I think one thing that's true at an alt more than I think at other publications is it's very personality driven. So if you have an editor, because you, know, you have a much smaller staff, you have a little bit more freedom, you have a, you know, the, on both the business and the editorial side. So if you have an editor that's committed to certain topics, committed to newsroom diversity, committed to covering certain issues, whether it be, you know, whether it be marijuana, whether it be racial equity, whether it be, you know, police reform or whatever, you have a lot more room there than I think you do at some at a larger outlet where there's a lot more levels to go through for approval or a lot more where they feel to always be covering the the top story, whereas an alt can feature you know, an investigation, you know, an investigation that they've been working on for a long time on the cover, and and really give it a lot of a big spotlight. So, I still think that alts have a lot more room to fill gaps in coverage, and I think it's not not it's not like as Andrew was saying the heyday where or, you know I don't want to call it the heyday, but back in the day where the alts really did exist to criticize the Daily and and, and really go at it after after the Washington Post, and that that was the case in a lot of our markets where the alts were just attacking, you know, they would have a column dedicated to picking apart what, what the daily was doing wrong. That doesn't really exist anymore, but it doesn't mean that alts can't still fill, fill a special niche that it doesn't exist right now. I know we can, we can sort of talk about how the alts, the strengths of it being, you know, long-form journalism, sort of um, adversarial type coverage, editorial coverage, but I mean, for long-term long sustainability, we also have to think about the model. I mean, can alts continue to, to exist as both print and digital, or, or are they going to sort of evolve into a digital only and therefore compete with you know, big papers and, and blogs and other types of things? It's very, very difficult to make it as a digital-only product covering one small area. The scale that you need to make money is just not there. DCist had three employees. I think that that would be um, a stretch. So you you kind of have to have some other component. Maybe it's not a print paper. Maybe it's a thriving events business. But it's uh, something that varies market to market. I mean, one of the things Jason and, and I have talked about in the past is how alts in smaller markets tend to do a lot better than than the ones in the big one in the bigger markets who are getting slammed. Alexa? No, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, I mean, one thing I've learned during the sale is that, you know, print is, we sell a lot of ads to really, like, the Smithsonian and the 930 Club and big institutions see value in advertising in city paper. So the paper product is still real for sure, I think. But I will say, when you see, and there's some tremendous nonprofit local media sites like the New Haven Independent, 
the Honolulu Civil Beat. I mean, you know, there's many of them actually, and those would be online only, um, and they're nonprofit funded. So that's a different model, I think, that's emerging to achieve local journalism. I think I saw today that Gawker's employees are also trying to do a nonprofit, and I, I know that with us, Brandon Soderberg and Baynard Woods have binge, which is Baltimore, what is it? I don't know. Institute for Nonprofit <laughs> Yes, which they kind Balt- of... Baltimore Institute of Nonprofit Journalism. Yes. They cribbed from Boston's binge, same thing with Boston instead of Baltimore, which is a nonprofit bent. And I'm remembering now that the real news is also a nonprofit. So it really seems like that's... So are you benefiting from that binge money or is this, or are you a completely separate venture? That's a separate venture. Okay. And, and so your model is, uh, your business model is... Sales. Sales. Sale mm-hmm. at, at display advertising and classifieds? Yes. Okay. I think there are some newspapers out there like Willamette Week, which is a great newspaper, has a fund. I think that they're, they're at like fourteen or $17,000. I mean, that's not a lot of money, but quite a few cover stories right there, you know. I know the Arkansas Times has had a lot of success, and they're an alt fundraising around specific projects. There was an environmental emergency in Arkansas, and they were able to get quite a bit of money to, to cover, I think it was an oil spill, I can't remember. But So there are these sort of hybrid models coming out, too, that I've seen that I think that's really interesting. You know, we're, we're here to talk about the future of the alternative press, and I don't want to be all dire. I mean, what do you see going <laughs> forward? Are some of the, you know, what is it that, that the alternative press can still do that better than, than anybody else, do you think? You can report great news stories. Like, Duh. <laughs> we can do journalism better than anyone else. I think that's what we can do. We cover great, we do great stories with the ones that we're able to do. We do great arts okay. coverage. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say Matt Cohen's doing a really good job of tweeting this panel. <laughs> Washington City. Oh, paper. okay. There we go. We're owning, the, we're owning social media. No, what were, we, what were you going to say, Lisa? I was going to agree with you. Um, like I said, our, our story that we have, which is about the Baltimore City Police Department, could never be written by the Sun because, you know, the Sun kind of scoops us on a lot because they're, the police department wants them to have certain information before anyone else. And that's great for the Sun in certain things, but very bad for other things because it's going to be harder to write critically about them. And the kind of thinky piece where he puts himself in the story that Baynard turned out is not something that you're going to see anywhere else. Another thing that you kind of tossed up, but I think is really important, is arts coverage. Because, you know, that's, that's I think, our deputy editor, Maura Callahan, is also our arts editor. And one of the things that she said very early on in our talks about this paper is that arts coverage to her is just as important as news. Because a lot of times that's a reaction to news. It can kind of, you know, be the way that people are reacting to, to the environment that we're living in. So for me, that's, like, as important as a piece on, like, the Baltimore City Police. Something that you said, and it also that, that Alexa said about, you know, representing the, the community better, you know, in, in a dream and looking forward and, and, and hoping that the city paper will evolve, evolve that. How important is it to sort of establish that you reflect that community and, and the interests of the community? Because the sense that you get a lot of times with the alt press is, you know, they're they're speaking to somebody who who maybe not is not usually served by other other means. I think diversity of all kind is really important in a newsroom. I mean, age diversity is also important. I think it's important to reflect your city. I think 
there's also within newsrooms, like I think it's really important to have outsiders and insiders. I mean, you know, we have a staff person who's with us 31 years. I mean, that person reads the entire paper every single week. Our photographer, Daryl Montgomery, is our copy editor because and our um, fact checker because he knows so much about D.C. He reads the whole thing every single week. But someone like me, I'm from Boston, which is why I knew what Binge stood for. <laughs> but, um, you know, I come in with a different set of questions because I'm not used to the district and I don't know what's going on and I think it's really healthy to have an outs outsiders in a newsroom so I think you're really the ideal thing there's like a lot of different kinds of diversity that you're looking for is that something that you see reflected in in a lot of the publications that that Ann represents yeah I mean I think having a local representation is extremely important because that is kind of at the core of what a lot of Ann papers have been about and that's true not just on the editorial side but on the business side is having those relationships with local businesses I think you know if you look at the actual numbers you know 75 percent of the you know, the advertising is coming in as local, if, if not more. You know, that national advertising is just a slice of it. And so that's why, you know, it's important. You know, this is part of the entire this is sometimes even bigger than the media industry. It's about local record stores, local bookstores that used to, you know, the movie theaters that used to be kind of the core of what made up the back of the book. That when they close, you know, that impacts you know, that impacts the papers. And that's kind of what we saw in Houston was after the hurricane. You know, one of the reasons they had to switch to online only was that a lot of the local businesses got hit so hard and stopped advertising. And it was just, it reached a point where there was just too much for them. And so it's really about local on a lot of different levels. Yeah, one of the things I want to sort of expand on in our, in our talk here is that people who listen to this podcast quite often are working, they want to work in a big newsroom, they want to work on a, you know, they want to work for the Post, they want to work for a large paper or news outlet, and the the alternative pressing not be on, on, on their radar, it might be some, not be something they think about, oh, that's not something I want to get involved in. What is it that the alternative press can offer to the journalist, the young journalist who's looking for a different type of career? Not a career, I mean... They're not going to make money, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fulfilling employment. Well, I mean, you know, we don't pay much, but there's no problem for, you know, if, you, if we advertise a position, people apply. There's way more talent out there yeah. in journalism than there are jobs. So it's not hard to find someone. I think it's a shame sometimes the rates in all the publications. It's yeah. not just alts, but people see a chance to, to be a journalist. I, I think people are excited to work still at City Paper. Okay. And you get to actually write, because if you're going to start off at like a big publication, you're probably not writing, or you're writing, you know, super stiff, boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so like I've only pretty much worked for smaller papers, and I'm so happy that I have because, you know, there's a slower pace, and you get to develop yourself and learn. Well, let's talk then about some of the big stories you've worked on as reporters and editors, ones that you're you're the most proud of, Andrew. How about you? One of my favorite stories ever, I mean, I, I loved working on food coverage at Washington City Paper. I I also really loved a lot of our long-form stuff. We used to have six full-time staff writers, just did long-form one every six weeks. Yeah, it was a heck, heck of a time. But uh, Dave Jameson wrote a story about an arsonist who had been plaguing this area. And he developed a relationship with the guy and exchanged letters with him. And in the course of his reporting, found out that the guy had killed some people that had never been reported. It was a hell of a good story. That was a real highlight for me. I really, I really appreciate that one. And, um, and I miss that time. How about you, Lisa? So 
One of the things that kind of annoys me about the coverage of black people and black issues is that they're always really sad. It's always like, oh, <laughs> look at these poor drowned, downtrodden souls. So, <laughs> so one of the stories that I like that I've written the most is um, about Turner Station, which is the area that Henrietta Lacks grew up. And it's this random, tiny little community outside of um, Baltimore City in Baltimore County. And it started because we wanted to like just do a quick little piece on the area before the Oprah Winfrey movie came out. And I ended up talking to this lady who's like the representative. She's just like a bossy, crazy old black lady. And she made us go on a tour. And, you know, I, I've started realizing as we go on this tour that it's very similar to the community that I grew up in in Annapolis, which is the parole area, which is one of the few kind of middle-class black communities really in Maryland. So I started, I just wrote this long piece that kind of talked about that and talked about the similarities that you see in these black communities and the things that make them great and the ways that they're kind of bonded together. And so I just like that because it's another way of looking at people that's not just like, you know, and obviously there were, there were lots and lots of things that were sad about that, you know, lots of reasons why Henrietta Lacks' family suffered and, you know, the fact that these people were kind of just put in this area and weren't given the same access to other people who were also like factory workers in that same area got. But still, it was just like such a great, like, look at families and community that I'm really proud of. How about you, Alexa? Um, I'm proud of a lot of stories. And most recently, we had a story about Fort Reno. It's a neighborhood in D.C. And it was a story about the history of Fort Reno from the time it was an actual Civil War fort. And it had been an early middle-class African-American community. And it was just all about the sort of a long-standing planning effort to get that community. It was actually mixed-race, checkerboard community, to get everybody out and so that it could be a park, it's the highest point in DC, and to make Tenley Town basically the wealthy enclave that it is. And it was just a really, it was like breaking a, like a scoop circa 1926. You know, it was really amazing to have that. And Use your time machine. That's one example of a recent story. You know, I'm proud, I'm proud of the work um, WAMU recently did on, on Blue High. I'm proud of the Post's work on the, story they did on um, the uh, woman who claimed to have had a baby by Roy Moore or had an abortion, I can't remember. So I think that there, that was, I, I'm just a real fan of great stories. Just a news nerd. Yeah, news nerd. That's cool. I think we're all here. <laughs> it's a Monday night and we're, we're sitting here listening to people talk about <laughs> newspapers. Come on. We have to be newsers. How about you? Well, you worked in Los Angeles, right? I did. I did not work in a newspaper, though. So, I mean, I'm going to feel like the parent, given the political answer. When I was a kid. I love all our children equally here. But, (laughs) I mean, when honestly, and every year when we we do an annual awards program and all of our papers, um, you know, enter, and it's a chance. It's one of the few journalism awards where... You know, they get to compete against their peers across the country and Canada, where we also have members. Um, and so it's every year when I when we, I see that list of the finalists come out and the winners, it's, it's just a good reminder of, you know, through all the tough times that we've been through economically in the past, you know, decade or more in the media industry, to see, you know, these papers, you know, in places like Colorado Springs and Santa Barbara and Jacksonville and in the major markets, too, uncovering of you know, police corruption. You know, finding people who are wrongly inco- 
incarcerated who are being set free, things like that, to see these small papers still doing like that, you know, week in and week out is, you know, gives me hope and it really, you know, keeps me going every day to know that that's, you know, that's what we're doing every week. Now, yeah, and one of your papers a couple of years ago won a appeal surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Ulam a week. They've taken down two governors, so that's... Um, <laughs> 48 more. <laughs> we'll get them. We, we, we need more alt press. That's why we need the alt press, to, to take care of the governors. Okay, we alluded to it sort of at the beginning of the political climate that we're in. How has that sort of affected the alt press? How has the, the alt press risen to that challenge? Or, you know, what's, what's your strategy moving forward, the current political environment? I think one of the really interesting things now is, and here is that Washington doesn't have to be a local story. You know, as the center of the nation's news gaze has increasingly been stopped here, it's a tremendous opportunity for people doing local journalism to get a much bigger audience and to think about a much bigger audience. But that said, it's almost impossible because there is only one story in America right now. What is that? <laughs> you know, I think it's important. I've thought of this before and think of it just now. It's just to keep your head screwed on straight and stay local. But you can't just, like, let your council member, like, get away with bullshit because Trump's president. So I think it's really important in this moment, actually, even though your story is kind of, like, not the sexiest thing. Yeah. It's the alternative press. We say bullshit here. <laughs> we call bullshit bullshit. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I would just add, too, also to that point, is that, you know, a lot of these things that are happening in D.C. have local impacts. These tax plans, whatever, you know, immigration, this all has an impact on the local level. And I think it's, you know, each of our papers have an opportunity to go find those stories and, and personify it. Because I think a lot of times the national press, if you're talking about, you know, the a tax policy or, you know, even the health care plan, there's a, you know, you can get bogged down in kind of these big numbers and everything. And I think the alternative press, what they've always done is be able to, I think it goes back to that narrative journalism, be able to tell the story of so one individual or say one family that's been affected by this policy and really tell that story well and really show how policy here in D.C. affects things on the, on the local level. So uh, we're, I think what we're going to do right now is we're going to open this up to questions. Nicole, who is, uh, is our producer. Hello, Nicole. Hi. You know, before when you heard that phone going off, that was our, our producer's phone going off. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I told you to provide some natural sound. Thank you very much for doing that. So uh, why don't you come up here? Just, if somebody has a question, uh, we have a microphone. Please identify yourself and uh, tell us if you work at a publication or just tell us what you want to tell us and then ask a question. Hi, I'm Eliza. I work at RT America, so I'm coming from the broadcast side of things. Um, and so I had kind of a two-part question. First is, is there you know room or a place for like a national alternative? And what about you know the more broadcast alternatives, not necessarily print? Is that I mean, we kind of term ourselves as an alternative to the mainstream media, and feel like we get no backing from anyone. So it's, it's kind of an interesting place to be right now, and, and it's kind of resonated a lot with the, you know, figure out where you're going to go and how to stay local or stay on this topic. And so I just wanted to see if there was a way to do stuff like that on a national level or a broadcast side of things. I don't know why we haven't thought about this before. The Kremlin should buy 
Washington City paper. <laughs> yes. It's all the pieces are falling into place. Mm, it suddenly makes sense. Well, no, for me, with our work with the Real News Network, it's kind of opened up this whole another thing in my brain. I started out, my first job ever in journalism was at WJZ-TV, which is the CBS affiliate in Baltimore. So that was the last time I've ever worked in TV. But now that I have access to like cameras and you know, photographers, it's a whole new ball game. So, you know, I'm starting this thing where I do interviews once a week on camera. Um, and we're also just looking for other ways. They have a national audience and an international audience because most of their focus is national, international. But they do, they have kind of started to focus more on Baltimore. And like, we're just kind of working together to, fig to kind of brainstorm ways to, to push that. And even like branching out to not just hard news things, but like, food or you know entertainment and arts and things like that can you talk a little bit about, about uh, the podcast that Baynard does oh yeah so Baynard does democracy in crisis Baynard is like a one-man journalism machine <laughs> because he wrote our cover story he wrote democracy in crisis which is his weekly syndicated column on the goings-on in DC he also reviews weed. <laughs> so um, so the podcast is like, so basically it's whatever he's reporting on in D.C. He has people on and interviews them and then kind of extrapolates on that in the column that runs in our paper and then other alt-weeklies around the country. Yeah, and that was a podcast that originally started out on radio, too, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it was with And them. so there's there's a radio connection as where that was the uh, one of the PBS NPR stations in, in Baltimore. It was um, the WEAA, which is out of Morgan State University, and it was, I think, coupled with Mark Steiner, yeah. who had a show until very recently. Like, everything yeah. just died in Baltimore last yeah. year, so... No, it's, it's going gone. To. Everything's going great. Um, <laughs> don't, don't say that. Um, no, um, that's a great... Democracy in Crisis, you should check it out. It's a great pod podcast. Incredibly aggressive. Aggressively progressive. It's a great podcast. Yes, I, I just wanted to add a serious response to, to what you're saying because, I mean, I think you mentioned Gawker earlier, which was sort of a national alt-weekly, and a lot of the voice and a lot of the spirit that I think we saw that used to be in the thriving alt-press really made its way through there. I think storytelling is, good storytelling is good storytelling, you know, format doesn't change. I think RT probably has a higher hill to climb in terms of the audience, but I don't see why there couldn't be a, a national alternative voice. Over here. Hi, I'm Oren Levine from the International Center for Journalists, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about your audience, who your audience is now, and any thoughts about how you want to expand or somehow, you know, change or address, you know, who, basically who's, who's reading or watching and how do you think that might grow or change? So one of the things we were surprised to find out when I worked at City Paper was that our um, our average reader was a black woman in her early 30s, which is not what I was expecting at all. But I, I really want, like in all the press that I've done and all the people that I talked to about this paper is I want it to represent the whole city as much as possible. And I really want to, you know, Baltimore is a majority black city. So I especially want to make sure that I got black voices in there because like I worked briefly at the Baltimore Sun for about three months before I took this job. And, you know, even when I was at City Paper, it's just infuriating to look around and not see the diversity of the city and the people that are telling its stories. So 
you know, an eye towards diversity, but just kind of wanting to represent all the different parts of the city? I mean, for Washington City Paper, it's a great question. Um, I when I first took this the chief editor job, I met with all you know four past chief editors in D.C. We have two short-term ones who are live at a distance, but I think what Jack Schaefer said, who is the you know first major long-term editor of City Paper, or maybe it was one of his writers, but the, anyway, the point was that like everyone felt that City Paper was their paper at that time, and of course that was at a financially stronger time, but. I think that that's really the goal. I mean, if it should be that if you li live in the district and that you want to read news about life in the district, that the city paper should have something for you. And, you know, that would take a different budget. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I think that would be the goal. The one thing I throw in here, I'm thinking back to what you were asking before about, about radio, and it sort of ties into this. There, uh, We had Andrea Wenzel on uh, the podcast a couple of times, and um, her, her bailiwick is, is solutions journalism. And that's going into communities, you know, sort of setting up these sort of, uh, you know, I don't know what you call them, guerrilla newsrooms where you're actually involving members of the community, identifying what their particular needs are. And the idea is to try and identify, you know, groups that are underrepresented. And she's done this in, in Los Angeles. Uh, she worked with a radio station in Chicago public radio station. And then there was another one program that she did in, in rural Kentucky. So we have a couple of podcasts about that. But there are people doing that type of journalism, not necessarily so much under the alt press umbrella, but recognizing that there are underrepresented communities and how can they get those voices out there and approaching them in non-traditional ways. Let's, let's get some other questions. Hi, my name is Ann Vroom, and I've lived in Washington all my life. And first, I wanted to compliment all three current and former editors of the Washington, the paper, because um, in my experience, it was some of the finest investigative journalism and just plain good, entertaining writing of any publication in the in the region, including the Washington Post. So, kudos for that. I have a distinct recollection of particularly the articles. A lot of time were in depth in a way that the Washington Post just sort of walked away from. And they were also spontaneously generated due to the reporter's concern. Rack control, abandoned buildings, graffiti artists in the city, those kind of topics. And they were covered in depth. And you really learned something when you read the articles. Again, in a way, I don't think. so. My like, question, like who was Disco Dan? Yes, that's exactly right. Who was, I think we all remember that. That was a classic. And I know that it was carried heavily by the classifies. You could see that just, you know, looking at the paper, the three-fourths of it were classified, classified ads. And people don't need that anymore because they can hook up digitally through social media. How would you, how could, how can you have something that retains that local focus, I mean, one of our problems in D.C. is that the Washington Post only cares about national stuff or international. And so you don't get those things about, you know, the parking, system, parking ticket system falling apart locally, et cetera. Is there any space for that anymore, or are we all just sort of on our own now? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a great question. I mean, just to be clear, you know, as positive and upbeat as I've been tonight about the vision for City Paper, I think one resolution to the City Paper sale is that City Paper dies. I think that's a realistic possibility here. 
Way so to bring the room down. The question is, what's the business model? And you know, I think that there should be a business panel because there are people who really actually can think about that and work on it full time. And I'm truly a journalist and an editor. But what I've learned is that you know, events have really helped. That you know, if you can become an event powerhouse, some publications have succeeded that way. Some publications have gone totally nonprofit and succeeded and built up that way. And some have developed this hybrid model. Um, and, I, you know, I know a little bit more, a lot more about those models than I did three months ago, but I don't, I don't know the solution. And I'm, I don't know if I'm the most equipped to, to answer. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there is there is a magic bullet here because if there was, if we all had the answer to that, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be having this panel, and I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be buying up alt weeklies and implementing that plan. You know, I mean, so, I mean, from what I've seen across and papers, it really does vary by market. Just like Alexa said, is that some, you know, for some papers, they're able to capitalize on their relationship with their readers and either do crowdfunded projects for certain investigative projects, or in Boston, you know, they started binge the nonprofit as well. Um, for others, it is events. Events has been a huge, you know, that's, it's not going to be the, the end-all, be-all savior for all weeklies, but events have been huge for some of our papers um, that have been putting on different, I mean, here we have Crafty Bastard, Bourbon and Bacon, and things like that, but um, that have been huge moneymakers are capitalizing on their brand as, you know, cultural, as, and their, as the cultural trendsetter, the take, taking advantage of some of the relationships with the local venues and, say, liquor distillers and being able to put on great events like Margarita Fest and things like that. But really, I think, you know, everyone's piecing it together, just like, you know, one of the harder parts with, for for our papers is that we don't have necessarily the history of the subscription model, subscription revenue that the dailies have. So the dailies have, you know, the subscription piece, and then they have the advertising piece, and then they can do it, you know. For us, it's traditionally been the, the lion's share has been advertising, and a lot of it was classified and display. And so, um, and to to a certain degree, a lot of it still is, but we're making it up in certain areas in digital, whether it be email newsletters, whether it be the events, whether it be, you know, be all different types of digital, um, and there is no end all be all. It's just, I think diversification is kind of, kind of be the name of the game, but in each market it's gonna vary by you know who does better and what, you know, some people might do digital better, some people might do better on capitalizing on the nonprofit route. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Hi. Hi, I'm Lindsay. I work in journalism as well. My question is, what can we on an individual basis do to sort of help boost alternative news besides tweeting and hashtags? What more can we do beyond our slacktivism of hashtagging? You, you can buy Washington City paper. <laughs> <laughs> the doors are locked. You just told me and that. And we're not leaving oh, no. <laughs> until yes. you guys come up with the money. This is a yeah. This is a fundraiser. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> I think we've had a great discussion here. I think it's not all dire. There's good journalism being done. There are you know uh, Jason just outlined a few uh, business models that that have some promise. We'll see. I think that's probably the best best way to put it at this point. I think there are a lot of good journalists who want to continue doing uh, the fine work that we recognize as excellent. Jason, Alexa, Lisa, Andrew, thank you for coming to, coming to the podcast, being on this panel. Thank you all for coming to our live podcast recording. Thank you. 
You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also subscribe to It's All Journalism on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. Do you want to find out more about our podcast, like future live events and uh, more information about our Patreon campaign? Subscribe to our weekly newsletter at itsalljournalism.com. It takes a lot of people to produce an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this week's episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean. Across the 10, the 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.